Open your Bibles to the book of James. The book of James. We're just going to look at one verse in the book of James tonight. That's James 1, 1. James 1, 1. James writes there, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Let's pray. Lord, bless this, this epistle that we're going to study. Might you speak to us through it and by it. We know there's much to be learned, much to be gleaned from the writings of James. We thank you for using him to put down on paper what you know you what you knew we would need in this day and age. So, Lord, help us to have open and receptive minds. Help us to see with spiritual eyes. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Simple title, the epistle of James. This evening, we shall launch out on a journey through the epistle of James. This epistle is a favorite of mine because of its practicality. It is kind of a hands-on epistle that brings us face-to-face with everyday principles and practical Mature, everyday principles and practicality. It's a kind of hands-on epistle that brings us face-to-face with everyday principles of practical, mature Christian living. One of the main themes of James is that a faith without works is dead. James drives home the idea that faith in Christ is not just to be talked about, but is to be lived out in a believer's daily life. Tonight, we're going to lay the groundwork for the found, or the foundation for this study. And so the first thing we want to notice here is the author. James identifies himself. His name is James. By the way, James was a very popular name at the time of the writing of this epistle. James was a form of the Old Testament name, Jacob. Now, his identity... And we're looking at his identity, humanly speaking. There were several men in the Bible who bore this name in the New Testament history. First, there's James, the son of Zebedee. Most of us are familiar with him. He was the brother of John the Apostle. He was a fisherman who was called by Christ to come and follow him. He and John had a nickname. They were called the Sons of Thunder in Mark 3.17. Now, James is believed to be the first martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ after his crucifixion and resurrection. He was beheaded by Herod shortly after the day of Pentecost. Look over at Acts chapter 12. Just back a little bit, Acts chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. The Bible says there, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. So James, we believe, was beheaded by Herod. And if you'll read on, we don't have time to do that. He had Peter in jail, and he was fixing to cut his head off when God interceded in his behalf. So we believe James, as far as we know in the Bible, was the first martyr 
after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. There's, so we're talking about James, the brother of John, James, the son of Zebedee. Then there's James Alpheus. We find him in the New Testament. He, too, is one of Christ's 12 uh, disciples. He's mentioned in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 3. But the knowledge of him is very limited for us. We have another James, and he's a James of the other, or the brother of the other Judas, not Judas Iscariot. He's probably James the less that was mentioned over Matthew 15, 40. And then there's James, the half-brother of Christ. Now, did Christ have half-brothers and sisters? Absolutely. Go over to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. Hate when pages stick together. Matthew 13. Look at verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Once then had this man all these things. So we know from the scriptures, Jesus had stepbrothers and stepsisters. By that I'm saying that we know that Jesus was not the, the physical son of Joseph, but after Christ was born, then they had other children, and they're listed right here for us. You know, when you tell a Roman Catholic that, they're very reluctant to believe that. We had some folks here who had come out of Roman Catholicism years back, and uh, I mentioned that one time in a sermon, and she took, oh, she took umbrage at that and uh, got me out to the service, and I said, well, let's look at the Bible, and took her to the Bible and showed her right from the Scriptures what the Bible has to say. Now, here's the thing. If a Roman Catholic goes back to the priest and says, you know, Pastor Gilmore said Jesus had brothers and sisters, and it's a, he has it listed right there, they give some kind of story about Joseph died and Mary uh, married again and the fellow she married again already had children. You know, they make, they make up a big fairy tale instead of just believing the truth. But anyway, he did have brothers, and we believe this James that wrote this epistle is the half-brother of Christ. He was not one of Christ's disciples. You know, when Jesus was walking the earth for three and a half years in his ministry, his brothers and apparently his sisters did not follow him. They did not receive him as the, as the Messiah at that point. We believe that it was only after his resurrection that uh, James, probably James, came to him first and then convinced his brother to come and accept Christ, his brothers and his brethren. Now, James and the other brothers did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry, yet we find them in the upper room praying with the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. What affected the change from unbelief to faith? 1 Corinthians 50, 15 verse 7 indicates Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. Thus James was convinced that Jesus truly was the Savior, and he likely convinced his brethren. So this is the James we believe, wrote this epistle, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we've seen his identity in a human, humanly speaking. But how about his identity spiritually speaking? Well, he, he gives testimony of himself. Go back to James chapter 1. And we find as he begins his epistle, he identifies himself. He said, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. He's a man totally dedicated to doing God's will and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the servant, he says. Well, what's that mean when he says he's a servant? Well, it means in his day, it would mean he became a bond slave to God and to Christ. And go back to Exodus chapter 21. That's an easy one to find, Genesis, Exodus. In chapter 21 of, 21 of Exodus, look at verses 5 and 6. says there in verse 4 if his master have given him a wife and she hath been born and she hath have borne him sons or daughters the wife and the children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself and if the servant shall plainly say I love my master my wife and my children I will not go out free then his master shall bring him unto the judges he shall also bring him to the door or under the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Now it's talking about what we call a bond slave. And that's a slave who could rightfully be set free. He has the opportunity to go free. But this is a bond slave, a slave who himself declares, I don't want to be free. I want to remain a servant of my master. And James is identifying himself as that kind of a servant for the Lord Jesus Christ, a bond slave. By the way, uh, if you'll notice there, it says they bore a hole in this person's ear. There's nothing there about an earring. I had a fellow one time came to the church, and he had two big earrings. And he supposedly got saved, you know, and he said, I want to go soul winning with you. I said, great, that'd be wonderful. I said, look, and here's how I said it. I said, look, I want you to do something for me. He said, what's that? I said, Take the earrings out. Well, he went away. This was Sunday. Thursday, he showed up, and he didn't have the earrings in. I thought, okay, that's cool. Well, then the next Sunday, he didn't come to church. Hmm, next Sunday, he didn't come to church. Well, it's time for the preacher to, where you been? Well, he was offended because I asked him to take those earrings out. I said, well, look, earrings, are, number one, they're a sign of rebellion in young people. And number two, they're a sign of femininity. Why in the world would you want to wear an earring? Well, I'm a bond slave. I said, really? He said, yeah, over in the Old Testament. And he wanted to school me in the Old Testament what a bond slave was. I said, well, that's interesting. Yes, they took that slave and they put him against the door of the doorpost and they put a hole in his ear. From what I understand, if my information is correct, they didn't put it here. They put it up here because this will not close. And they didn't put an earring in. I don't find anywhere where they said they got an earring. All they got was a big hole in their ear. And uh, I told him if he wanted to do that, that would be acceptable. He wasn't too keen on that. 
But a bond slave is one who willingly surrenders his will to his master. And so James is saying he is a person who has surrendered his will completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. His life is now lived for Christ and in the service to Christ. And then we find this, that this James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He moderated, how do we know that? How do we know that he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem? Well, we read the Bible. You know, let the Bible explain itself. Go over to Acts chapter 15. I know we're turning to a lot of verses tonight, but that won't hurt you. You can use the exercise. Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, I'm going to begin at verse 13. It says there, And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. And after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Now, wherefore my sentence is. Now this is James speaking that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleaseth the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, named surnamed Barsabbas and Silas, chief men among the brethren. Okay, here's what's going on. Paul and Barnabas were over in Antioch, and Gentiles were getting saved, and they were coming into the church. They were becoming part of the church. But then some Judaizers crept in there, and they started telling them, in order to be saved, you don't just have to have Jesus as your Savior. You've got to be circumcised. Hmm. So now Paul and Barnabas go back to Jerusalem because they want to get they want to get right from the apostles' mouth where they should be on this issue. And so they come to Peter and James and John right there in Jerusalem and they pose the question. And this is what James is the one who comes with the final answer. That's why we see him as the head of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Peter had a little bit to say, uh, but James is the one who gave the final answer. So we believe he's the leader in the church. Paul called him a pillar in Galatians chapter 2, verses 9, 19, and verse 20. Now when Paul visited Jerusalem, it was to James that he brought greetings and the special love offering. Go over to Acts 21. Verses 18 and 19. 
It says, in the day following, Paul went with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And so once again, the Bible indicates he's, he's coming to James. He's dealing with James in the, in the context of his local church. Now, let's see. Tradition tells us James was martyred in AD, AD 62 in Jerusalem. Now, tradition tells us. We don't have anything in the scriptures that tells us how James died. But tradition says that the Pharisees threw James down from the temple. You know, the temple was built way up. That they actually threw him off the, the edge of the, the uh, temple there, and they came and clubbed him to death uh, after he was on the ground. Now, the story also relates that James died, as did Christ, praying for his murderers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So James became, I would call him, a spiritual giant in uh, my estimation. So we see the author. The author is James. Then we see the audience. Go back to James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. Well, he writes to 12 tribes scattered, and that would be saved Jews living outside the Holy Land, living outside of what we might call Palestine. The term 12 tribes can only refer to the people, the nation of Israel, and the fact that many Jews lived outside the Promised Land is an evidence of the spiritual decline of the nation. Listen, go back to Deuteronomy. I want you to see something back there. That's a little harder than Exodus. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Something God told the Jews way back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25. He says, When thou shalt beget children and children's children, you shall have remained long in the land and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image of the likeness of anything and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. So God promised that when they backslid and went after idols and, and started intermarrying and that kind of thing, he would scatter them. And that took place. And uh, when, if you remember on the day of Pentecost, remember when Peter preached on Pentecost? Jerusalem was filled with Jews from different parts of the known world of the day. They had come back to Jerusalem. That's why they had different languages. Hello? You know, they spoke in tongues that people heard them in their own language and their own dialect. That's because these Jews had spread out to other parts of the world and now picked up languages of other places. But on that day of Pentecost, they had come because three times a year they would appear in Jerusalem. And that's why there were so many there. That's why there were so many saved, 3,000 people saved. I, you know, we have no idea how many people Peter preached to. Hello? <laughs> yeah. 
less than 3,000 people getting saved. Everybody that heard the preaching didn't get saved, if I read my Bible right. But 3,000 did. I can't help but wonder. You know, oftentimes we say, uh, boy, one in 10 is a good ratio of people getting saved. Well, just think, if that was the case with Peter, they had 30,000 people there, which is a real possibility. So what I want you to see is the Jews had been scattered. There were Jews living not just in Jerusalem, but in the far-off parts of the world, and James is writing to them, and not just Jews, but saved Jews. Now, I'm catching up with myself here. So when Peter addresses, or James addresses his brethren in his, in his epistle here, he uses the word brethren some 19 different times. And when he writes that, he's not only, not only brothers in the flesh, but also brothers in the faith that he's talking to. And he identifies them as scattered. In the uh, original language, it's diaspora. We get our word dispersed from that. And it means to scatter as in scattering seed. You ever plant grass? How many of you ever planted grass? How many of you ever did it this way? You didn't use one of them fancy machines. You did it the old-fashioned way, feeding the chickens. <laughs> That's what it reminded me of. I, when I was growing up, we had a neighbor who had chickens. She had pigs. She had cows. But I used to see her feed the chickens, and she would go out there, and she would just feed the chickens. Well, scatter. And that's what God did to these, these Jews. Even the, the ones who got saved went back to their respective countries. So they're scattered. Now, we see the audience. Dispersed, saved Jews. So we have the author. We have the audience. Now I want you to look at the appeal. You know, being scattered was going to bring special problems for these Jews. Think about this. Being Jews, they would be rejected by the Gentiles. Gentiles want nothing to do with them. Being saved Jews, they would be rejected by the Jews. They wanted nothing to do with them. So they were kind of men without a country, if you will. James' epistle indicates most of his audience is poor, and some of them are being oppressed by the rich. James' epistle deals with several specific problems they face in their personal lives and in their church fellowship. So the book of James is going to deal with some problems these dispersed Jews are facing, Christian Jews. Number one, they were going through times of severe testings and trials. Their life was not easy. They weren't accepted by the Gentiles. They weren't accepted by the Jews. They were having hardships and trials and tribulations. They were facing temptations to sin. <coughs> we'll see that as we study. And James has to deal with the fact that they're having temptations and they're not supposed to give in to their temptations. Some were catering to the rich in the church. James has to deal with the issue of people that were more affluent looking down their nose at people who were less affluent and taking advantage of them. So he has to deal with that. Some were being robbed by the rich. Some were being abused by the rich. There was a general failure among them to live what they professed to be. They professed to be Christians, Christ followers. That's what Christian means. And yet they weren't living out what they said they believed. 
And then the tongue was a serious problem. It was creating wars and division in the assembly. And James, gonna, uh, he, boy, he uses some strong language there, but it's causing division and, and, and infighting in the assembly. Some were blatantly disobeying God's word and were suffering sickness as a result. We'll see that over in chapter 5. And some were falling away from the church and the Lord. Chapter 5 once again deals with that. Well, we've seen all that. Now, what's the application of all this? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to give you a quote. One man wrote this. As we review this list of problems, does it appear to be much different from the problems that beset the average local church today? Do we not have in our churches people who are suffering for one reason or another? Do we not have members who talk one way but walk another way? Is not worldliness a serious problem? Are there not Christians who cannot control their tongues? It seems that James was dealing with the very up-to-date matters. Listen, I say many times, some things never change. Listen, James is dealing with the same situation pastors deal with today. The church. This can come as a real surprise to you. The church is made up of people. You say, what? Yeah, church is made up of people. You know what people means? People means problems. Because people are people. Sometimes in counseling sessions, I have to remind people that, hey, people are just people. I don't excuse sin. But I know that as humans, we are susceptible. As humans, we often fail. As humans, we're not going to be perfect. I'm sorry, you thought you were. Mm. No, no, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> See, as we study this epistle, I want you to bear this in mind. The problems James deals with have a common source. The common source of all these problems is Christian immaturity. Baby Christians. Christians who have not grown like they should. In this epistle, we're going to see James deals with the marks of maturity in the Christian life. James uses the word perfect several times. Chapter 1 and verse 4. Well, let's look at them. Chapter 1 and verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variable, neither shadow of turning. Let's look at verse 25. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. Seest thou, seest thou how... Faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. Then look at 3 and verse 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, perfect. 
the perfect believer James write about is not a sinless person. There are no sinless people. There may be some good moral people. And the fact is, that's what we ought to be. Good moral people, Bible-following people. But there's not a person in this room who is perfect or sinless. Listen, we all have our failures. But what does he mean when he's talking about being perfect? Perfect is not a person who's sinless, but a perfect, a perfect person is a person who is mature, who is balanced, who has grown up spiritually. Hmm. Somebody said, spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in our churches today. You know, I say oftentimes, getting saved is just the beginning. That's the starting point. We're babes when we're born. We're children in God's family, but nobody's born grown up. So we come into God's family as spiritual babes. But we're not supposed to stay there. We're supposed to grow up to where we no longer need the milk of the word. Now we can handle the meat of the word. Well, somebody said this. <laughs> I love this. Too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. The members are not mature enough to eat the solid spiritual food that they need so they have to be fed on milk, according to Hebrews chapter 5, 11 through 14. Listen, the fact is this. God is looking for mature men and women to carry on his work, and sometimes all he can find are little children who cannot even get along with one another. That's a sad commentary. Well, let's talk about this study we're going to have in James. And I'm going to give you some essentials to getting the most out of the study. Essential number one is to be saved. You say you're preaching to the choir. I know that. I know that every person in this room professes, well, except the children, uh, professes faith in Christ. But I can't assume that that's always true. So the saved person is going to be able to glean, going to be able to feed on what we're going to see in James. The unsaved person don't have the discernment. So number one is to be saved. Number two, we need to be willing to honestly examine ourselves in the light of God's word. Look at chapter one. Verse 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. That's a mirror. He's like a man looking into a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not for a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Listen, when we look into the Bible, we're looking into a mirror. 
when we look into the Bible, it shows us our imperfections. You know, I'm assuming that when you get up in the morning, you do look in the mirror. If you don't, you go out into the world looking real funny. Have you ever seen you when you get up in the morning? Hmm. You look in that mirror and you say, time to, time to work on this. Hmm? Wouldn't it be silly for you to look in that mirror and see that your hair's all messed up and, and you ladies, you know, you need some paint on that, on that old barn and make the barn look better uh, and just say, well, forget it and just walk away? That'd be foolish. And I often use this illustration. You know, fellas, sometimes we're not as neat as we ought to be. And so before you came to church, you had your dippy eggs. And when you got to church, you had dippy egg on your face. Somebody said, you better go look in the mirror. So you go in, you look in the mirror. You got dippy egg on your face. Wouldn't it be silly to say, well, that's too bad, and walk away? No, you're looking in the mirror to see what's wrong so you can fix it. And that's how it's supposed to be with us. Somebody said about a man was visiting savage tribes, and he had a mirror, and he showed this savage himself in the mirror. And when the savage saw himself, he broke the mirror. Well, that's how some people treat the Bible. They don't want to, they don't want to, they don't want to admit what they're seeing. They don't like what they're seeing, but they don't want to change. We need to be saved. We need to willingly and faithfully examine ourselves in the light of God's word. And then we need to be prepared for extra trials and testings. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. We need to be ready to obey what God teaches us regardless of the cost. We're looking into this mirror. Whatever changes need to take place, we need to be willing to fix. Hello? Maybe it's you've got a problem with prejudice about those who are less well-off than you are. Maybe you have a problem with the tongue. Maybe you have other problems that James is going to be able to point out to you. We need to be willing to change. You know, too many believers want to sing that old Baptist hymn, I shall, I shall, I shall not be moved. No, 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 a thousand times, no. And then last of all, we need to be prepared for extra trials and troubles. Hmm? James opens up with this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Hmm. Somebody said this. Whenever we get serious about spiritual growth, the enemy gets serious about opposing us. Can I share this with you? Some of you remember 2011. I ended up in a hospital for two months. About two weeks before, I ended in a hospital for two months, never expecting to be in a hospital that long. I started a study in the book of James. And I believe it was the week before I ended up in a hospital for two months, I preached on James 1 and 2, about, or 1, 2, and 3, about the fiery trials of our faith. And all of a sudden, I was in the middle of them. And the devil said, oh, you want to preach the word? Mm -hmm. Here's some fiery trials to try to stop you. And it did. It stopped us. But we're back at it now. And so we can expect opposition. 
We just don't sit back and say, well, I want to see all change and mature and, and uh, make decisions. No, he hinders us. You know, not everyone who grows old grows up. That's a pretty good statement, isn't it? Think in your mind. How many of you know people who have grown old, but they've never grown up? And you know, some people, it's hopeless. I mean, they're just going to die that way. Just never grew up. But it's sad when that happens. But don't forget, there's a difference between age and maturity. I've seen some young people who mature beyond their years. I've seen some old people who still haven't matured at all. Just because a Christian has been saved 10 or 20 years does not guarantee that he or she will be mature in the Lord. But don't lose sight of this. Mature Christians are happy Christians. Mature Christians are useful Christians. Mature Christians are the kind of Christians who help to encourage others and to build the local church. Hmm. We start our journey tonight. Might be some nights you're going to have to buckle your seatbelt because it's going to get rough where you're sitting. But again, we need to be open. We need to be willing. We need to want God to deal with us and speak to us so that we can move on to maturity. I doubt there's a person in this room who wants to be an immature Christian your whole life. I think we all want to come to maturity, but it don't just happen. Hello? We have to work at it. We have to be willing and wanting to grow. And so I pray that as we go through James, that's going to be your desire and your heart, that you'll experience growth in your Christian life. And let's pray. Father, thank you for James. Thank you for what he wrote. And Lord, might we have that desire in our heart to be mature, more mature than we've ever been. Help us to grow in spiritual things as we study this epistle. And Lord, it's very practical. So much of what James writes is, is, is able to be plugged in on an everyday basis in our lives. Might we be attentive to it, and as you speak to us, might we be willing to change. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to